they were three ordinary women on what seemed like a simple mission to find a film they liked. One where women got something to do and not just look pretty or be murdered. Which, to be totally honest, has complicated matters a bit. Welcome to Flicking. Yes, it sounds a bit rude. That's the joke. Welcome to Flicking, our monthly look at one of our favourite films. I am joined, as ever, by the excellent Yosra Osman. Yosra, hello. Hello. And Hannah Dunleavy. Why didn't I get a The Excellent at the start? I was about to say also excellent, but I wondered if you'd whinge about it. And, you know, I call you excellent all the time. Sometimes I just email her in the middle of the night, listeners, to tell her how good (laughs) she is. It's what, it's what she demands. Stop WhatsApping me. <laughs> Stop WhatsApping you. Never. Hannah, it was your pick this month. What did you have us watching and why do you love it? So, not the lives of others as advertised, which for reasons I can't work out doesn't seem to be available to rent or buy anywhere online. It seems weird, doesn't it, that with the lives of others, literally nobody's watching right now. Mm, yeah. But happy face, I replaced that choice with something fucking fantastic, Pan's Labyrinth, a seamless mix of history and fantasy set in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War and written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, who it's worth stating, just in case anyone listening doesn't know, is not Spanish, but Mexican. Del Toro says that Pan's Labyrinth is a spiritual successor to his earlier film, The Devil's Backbone, which is also very good, and I would recommend that people watch But it also harks back to contemporaneous art about the conflict by the likes of Hemingway, Picasso, Auden and the poet John Cornford, who, FYI, actually died fighting in the International Brigades. Take that, Twitter-based Antifa. (laughs) They all somehow found, you know, something beautiful in a war so brutal that Spain is home to more mass graves than any country on Earth bar Cambodia. I think you can actually see that in the opening scene when the convoy of cars passes through the bombed out towns as the narrator tells us a fairy tale about a lost princess. Is Ophelia that lost princess? Well, I'm in camp, oh shit, yes, but more on that later. But I'd also argue that the lost princess is, you know, Spain. I often joke that I could write a dissertation on some film or another we're talking about, but in fact, if I was actually going to write a dissertation about a film, I would probably pick Pan's Labyrinth, so I'm going to try and rein it in a bit here. (laughs) The plot, in short, it's 1944, five years after the Civil War ended. Spoiler alert, the bad guys won. And Captain Vidal is leading the fight against determined rebels in the woods. Into this horror arrives 10-year-old Ophelia, the daughter of Vidal's new and heavily pregnant wife, Carmen. The new arrival attracts the attention of the magical underworld, and in particular a fawn who believes that the youngster is the lost Princess Moana. If she completes a series of tasks, he tells her she can return to her true home. Del Toro has said this film is about choices, and the choice Ophelia eventually makes is to say, fuck those fascist pricks, I'm going to go and live with the guy with a handbag full of fairies. (laughs) And I applaud her for it. So, to prevent me going off on a 20-minute PowerPoint presentation about the Spanish (laughs) Civil War every few minutes, I've got a few questions for you, designed sort of to move it along, and some fun facts, if you answer the question in a way that pleases me. Oh, oh. So, I want to start with Mickey, who had never seen this film before. You thought it might be a bit too scary monsters for you. And I said to you, the thing about Pan's Labyrinth is all the real horrors are above ground. Was I right? Absolutely agree with that. I'd seen 
pictures of Doug Jones as the pale man and it looked nightmarish, which obviously that remains, but it didn't scare me at all. The fantasy elements didn't scare me at all. They are very fairy tale. They are quite childlike. And yeah, the bit that made me really shy away and sort of go shit in hell was when he glassed a man in the face repeatedly at the top of uh, Act One. And yeah, so I would agree with you. The monsters are very much the human monsters. Great. Good answer, Mick. Here's a fun fact for you. Thanks. Del Toro was so annoyed by the quality of the subtitles on The Devil's Backbone that he wrote these ones himself. Oh, this is why you love him. He's dedicated to hard work. Yeah. And a control freak. (laughs) No, I think it's great because we talked about this with subtitles all the time. Mm. That sometimes, especially if you do that thing, which I've done as a test on Netflix, which is listen to it dubbed and then read the subtitles they quite often say two completely different things yeah it's when you see someone talking for ages and then it just says no and you're like yeah they gave it more yeah. than that yeah. yeah so if you're going to get a line delivered at the end which is your son will never even know your name you want it delivered in exactly the way that the guy wrote it so i think that's worth applause yosra you have seen this before you are a fan um, if yeah. you can avoid if you can avoid talking about the central performances here, that would be quite good because I've got a question on them later. But given at times, like Mickey said, this is really brutal. What keeps bringing you back? I think for me, I think technically Del Toro has done something astounding with this film. But also I've always been interested in fairy tales. And you said you could write a dissertation on Pan's Labyrinth. I did write an essay back in my uni days on on, um, Charles Perrault's fairy tales as part of my French degree. So I've always had quite an interest in them. And the thing that I think's quite good about Pan's Labyrinth, everyone says, oh, it mixes up fairy tale and horror. If you read some of the original fairy tales, something like Mm. Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, they are fucking brutal. Mm -hmm. They are dark. And Guillermo del Toro mixes this with the backdrop of political history. And I think he does it really, really well in achieving what actually is quite a traditional fable narrative but mixing it in with the horrors of reality and I think that that that's one of the the things that I love about it just as well as his creativity in 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 all that he makes happen on screen great great answer fun fact reward (laughs) although although we're talking about you know this film so how fun these facts are going to be maybe slightly um up for discussion Belkite, the town in those opening shots that the cars go through, was left in ruins by the fascists as a warning to rebels about what happens when you fight back. It remains in ruins and you can still visit it if you go on an official tour. I did know that. I bet that's on your hit list, isn't it? Would you like to go? Yeah, it's quite difficult. I did have another look again because it's not really near anywhere. It's about four hours away from Barcelona, which is quite a long drive, Mm. um, you know, for a day trip. When I retire and I get to just drive around Europe. That's the place I would go to as well. I'm enjoying these fun facts. Okay, (laughs) so I think we can agree that there are solid performances throughout this. Oh, yeah, yeah. But two of them really had to work or the entire film would have collapsed, I think. And that's then 11-year-old Ivana Banquero, who plays Ophelia, and Doug Jones, who plays the fawn. Doug Jones, for those people who don't know, is to prosthetic makeup what Andy Serkis is to motion capture. Mm-hmm. Do those two central performances work for you? Let's start again with you, Mick. I think 
the little girl is incredible. She carries so much weight with this film and she carries it almost effortlessly. I think she's great the way that she flits between her fantasy world and, you know, the kind of big bird talking about the Snuffleopolis or whatever he's called, Mr... What's he called? Only he can see. Anyway, she's a bit like that. She doesn't. She yeah. doesn't really discuss it. She keeps her under the the. I was going to say her netherworld, but that sounds very yeah. dodgy. She keeps her newfound adventures in her underworld to herself, and is also dealing with a, a whole lot of trauma in the real world. To mm. it's probably not the right way to say it because they're both very real to her. But no, I think she's brilliant. Doug Jones is great, isn't he? Most recently seen as the Baron in What We Do in the Shadows. The Fawn is an interesting character, but you didn't really ask me about the character. You asked me about the performance. And yes, I think it's convincing, given it's such an alien sort of fairy tale being that you're looking at. I think you do still relate to the Fawn and understand him. Yeah, agreed. Yosra. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think Ivana Bacchero is just does an incredible job. She's in that sort of weird place between childhood and adolescence. And as you follow the film, you're following everything that she's going through and how actually how she's trying to process it all. Um, and I think she does an incredible job of that. And you're right, the casting for, for Ophelia had to be, to make the film work, it had to be absolutely perfect. And I think it was perfect. I also would like to give a shout out to um, the Capitan, uh, Sergi Lopez as well, who I think is actually quite terrifying mm-hmm. in the film, more so than the monsters. And I think he does a pretty awesome job of that. Tell me what you what you think about the fawn then, because the trouble is he, he in many ways has to kind of trip Ophelia because he has a number of, you know, she, she has to pass a number of challenges. So she is sort of tricked in a number of ways, but in a kind of benign trickery, I think. What do you want to say about him, Mick? He is very tricksy and I didn't trust him from the start. And I think it's quite clear that Ophelia is wary at first. And it's still really uncomfortable when she hugs him after he's been gone for a while and he comes back to give her that last chance and she runs to him because there's fucking no one else for her to go there's to no, yeah, nothing. Right? yeah that's that shows how bad things are for her that he is yeah the, he is the positive presence in her life at that point yeah. yeah but it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is actually the positive presence in your life but mm. she obviously runs in because there's nowhere else to go yeah, fawns are tricky. Fairy tale creatures are, you know, famously, famously very, very tricky characters. They're meant to deceive. They're meant to twist truths and keep you on your toes. Uh, I don't know that I think he's benign as you do. But yeah, I guess that depends on whether you think it's all a figment of Ophelia's imagination or whether this world actually exists. Well, we will get to that. I thought we might, which is why I just kept yeah. it that short. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with Mick. He's not a very positive presence. He's actually quite a tyrannical character. Mm. And um, throughout, I, I, I was like Mick. I never, ever trusted the fawn. I don't really think we're meant to. I think how we're meant to see everything is through the eyes of Ophelia. Mm. And that's why we have this impression of the fawn. But also we see the, the actual downside. I mean, this has all been discussed around how he is the positive presence that she sees at that one point which in itself just adds to the kind of horror, but also adds a, a, a dy- another dynamic of realism beyond the fairy tale mm. of this film. So I think it is a very well done character. I, I don't, I'm not sure if I'd say he's benign either. I mean, benign, I suppose, in contrast to what her other options are. What her, yes, true, yeah. true. 
I guess the good thing about him is he offers her choices, even if sometimes the choices are shit or shit on a bit of bread. You know, that there's still a choice, whereas in the rest of her life, in her life above ground, there are no choices. She's got very little control, Mm. if any. Mm. Yeah. So, fun fact reward for answering that question. Jones asked how he was supposed to move as the fawn, and Del Toro suggested he do it like a rock star or a glam rock star. <laughs> and, and Jones eventually plumped for Mick Jagger. Yes, and when you know that, that. <laughs> when you know that, you cannot unsay it. Oh, lovely stuff, Del Toro. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Or Tina Turner, I guess, would be the other yeah. option. Yeah. <laughs> Now, understanding the history in this film isn't essential, but I would say that it does add to the experience. If you take the ending, for example, which I suppose in some ways could be seen as a happy ending. But even if in that scenario, it's a very hollow victory. They've won the battle, but they've lost the war. I mean, the the rebels were vainly hoping that after the Allies defeated Hitler and Mussolini, they'd come for Franco, but that didn't happen. Spain was a fascist dictatorship until the mid-1970s. That's mad, isn't it? 1975, it's mad. Until after I was born, I was two, and Franco was still in power. I mean, it's incredible. I wonder how much of the, the, the history you knew, how well you think del toro handles it whether you think del toro gives it to us in the in the right sort of in a way that it is understandable and whether you were inspired to find out more after watching it let's start with yosra this time i didn't know a lot about the history apart from what you've basically just said so i was i was quite clueless and i think del toro does what he needs to do for the film to achieve this kind of fuck fascism narrative basically i mean the right characters are terrifying you see the brutality the brutality is right in your face the entire time so like i said it's more terrifying than actually the fantastical elements of the film so i think he does a really good job of that and actually yeah i did i did go and look a little bit more into it i mean it's fascinating here history and it's also pretty terrifying history so in terms of ambience and everything else del Del toro does that really really well i don't know whether he needed to go into more detail i'm not an expert in this but for me he does he does just enough to make you interested and give you a sense of what that time could have been like yeah mick yeah i agree with what Yosvas just said and and kind of what you hinted at and and there's enough there that it it should spark an interest and i'm very aware that some people watch films and read books and that's it for them they're not really bothered about finding out more of the backstory or anything but it's so fascinating i knew a little bit about it because i studied spanish at a level and anyone who's heard me try to pronounce anything in french or italian will probably guess how well that went but the history that we covered was really interesting in like some of the books we read Lorca, i kind of got to know about franco through that and also through homage to catalonia and stuff like that where they're they're talking about franco and rebels and yeah i think it is just depicting one battle isn't it and at one point i can't remember which character says it but they say if you know if you get rid of him they're just going to bring another him in Mm. Mm. but there is a real pleasure in seeing the rebels win because you know that it's built into most of us that we want the good guys to win so knowing that they won that particular battle in 1944 and i imagine it reflects battles that were going on but that they were still living in a fascist state till 1975 is profoundly depressing really Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah and i do wonder how people who have watched that film and lived through 
fascist Spain, what what that does for them. There's a lot spoke about how we look at the past and how we look at what our nation perhaps was in the past. And I wonder, I wonder what this film might do for it because I'm an outsider. I don't know. Well, that's why I pointed out at the top that Del Toro is a Mexican. He is also an outsider. This is, mm. um, you know, Hemingway mm-hmm. was an outsider. Cornford was an outsider. It was, yeah, it's very much an outsider's view. I will say about five, six years ago, I was in Madrid standing, waiting on a corner, having a cigarette, waiting to meet someone in Madrid. And I started looking in a shop window and it sold those Capa de Monte statues the sort of statues you get in jewellers' windows, mm-hmm. you know, and there were ones of Franco in there. Now, take that what you will. I mean, I'm pretty sure Germany doesn't sell little statues of Hitler, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're only just talking about moving him. Now they're moving his grave, aren't they? We talked about it on the podcast a couple of years ago. They're actually moving his grave to somewhere like shit. <laughs> like Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> <laughs> No, but he's, he's like into an um, uh, unmarked grave, I mean, because he's currently in the sort of, I don't know what it's called, but it was built with slave labour, basically, this sort of, whatever the equivalent of sort of Arlington Cemetery in America, the big soldier's cemetery, mm-hmm. and, and he's being moved from there because, yeah, it's very odd. It is very odd. It is odd and it isn't, isn't it? Because I think, you know, we can see bits of it in this country. We certainly saw bits of it in America recently. Being the bad guy doesn't mean that you don't have a shit ton of supporters. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, let me find you a fun fact. I've got another fun fact. Uh, this Roll is a good game, okay. I like it. <laughs> okay. Well, this one actually handily links into the next topic, talking point. So, yes, go back to that. Women in Francoist Spain needed their husband slash father's permission to do all sorts of things, including going to work, going abroad, and opening a bank account. And women didn't get the right to start feminist societies in Spain until 1978. Wow. Wowzers. Which leads me to my next question. Going back to Del Toro's conversation about choice. The two women in Ophelia's life, Carmen, her mother, and Mercedes, the housekeeper, sort of represent the two choices facing most of Europe at that moment, which is when you see evil, do you appease it or do you fight it? And I think it's interesting that these two options are represented by the female characters Mm given mm. when to appease and when to fight is kind of an evergreen question for women. Absolutely. So let's talk about Carmen and Mercedes. Mickey. Oh, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm team Mercedes, but I'd probably be Carmen. I think is <laughs> if you, you didn't ask me which one I'd be, but I think that's how I, I would look at it. I understand both of them. And I love that Mercedes gets her, spoiler alert, sort of time to shine hugely when he has underestimated her as just a woman, which obviously was so ingrained that most men would probably have underestimated women as just a woman. And mm. she shows him otherwise, and she slices him like the other pigs she's gutted. And I think that's brilliant. But I do understand Carmen as well, when she's trying to explain to Ophelia, and she's like, it's been really lonely. And if you're in that situation where society means that if you don't have a man, you don't get to do anything, and you've got a daughter to bring up, what what do you do? Not everyone has the option to be a rebel and run out to the, the woods. 
or with be an underground girl. princess fairy and be an underground She's princess pregnant. fairy yeah i assume she made that choice before she got pregnant given that he's the, the daddy-o thinking about how she's represented as not having really any agency she doesn't even have agency of her own body she's pregnant and she's she's really ill at one point you know the bit with the mandrake yeah. where she's really ill and it's up to ophelia to well ophelia tries to save her through the mandrake you do feel sorry for her because as you said her position in that she's got a child that she's raising she's got another one on the way and she's presented as relatively frail in this film so she she is a character that you can totally understand her and you you do feel sorry for her mercedes has a lot more agency in the Mm -hmm. film and that's why again i would want to be mercedes but if i was in carmen's position i could not see myself being mercedes yeah 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 i mean i agree i mean mercedes is really easy to like you know and admire which quite often are mutually exclusive in, yes. in <laughs> but i do struggle with carmen as a character i think she makes me feel stuff that's distinctly unfeminist because she is such an appeaser even without her choices and she's training Ophelia to be an appeaser and yeah i do struggle with that as an as an idea but that said mercedes isn't without fault mercedes had the opportunity to kill the captain way sooner and doesn't take it takes the glory shot almost as it was by slicing his face open decides to it would be better to scar him like from her rather than rather than kill him and there are so many other characters that act so nobly the doctor when he kills the young lad even though he knows he's going to die himself at that point, when so many other people around her are acting so nobly, it kind of makes Harmon seem ignoble, I think, more. But like I say, it's deeply unfeminist. It makes me feel deeply unfeminist stuff. Um, I just get a sense from Carmen of desperate loneliness. Mm. And yeah. and that is why she's making the decisions that, that she's making. Yeah. So only quite recently, I discovered that there are a whole bunch of people who actually think all of this is in Ophelia's imagination, which I had never considered and I actually think is mad. It's <laughs> a fairy tale. Of course it would have a fairy tale ending. Discuss. Yosra. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's definitely real. I, well, obviously real in the film. Within the parameters uh, of what it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the parameters of what it is. It's, it's, it's a fairy tale, like you yeah. say. And he's he is blending, you know, realism with the fantastical elements. But because of that, it gives even more sense for what Ophelia is seeing to, in my head, be totally real. I, I've never seen it as it all being in her imagination. And forgive me if I'm wrong, aren't there bits where other people might see some of what she's seeing too? I think it's less than that. There are certain parts that just wouldn't happen if it wasn't yeah. real. If it wasn't for commas, what, yeah. The mandrake and the chalk the door, how she escapes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So no, I, I've. it's not in her head. I think it's very much there in that world. I mean, it's a Del Toro film. It's not a David Fincher film. That's not... It's not Bobby director. Ewing in the shower, guys. No, no. Mick. Hello. You did mention earlier the idea that Ophelia might not be the princess. Yes, and I think for a while, whilst watching it, I thought that was her escape route from the horrors of her real life. But obviously, when you get to the end of the film, and like I say, there are bits that just wouldn't work if if we didn't assume and accept that this world exists, then it must be true. So, yeah, I think it hints that it could be escapism, and then you go, oh, shit, that is real, it's happening. 
So, last fun fact. I mean, this was an absolute labour of love for Del Toro. He turned down the opportunity for twice the amount of money to make it if he made it in English. He said he wanted to make it in Spanish, so he turned down that extra money. It also ran over budget. He gave away his back-end points on this in order to get it finished. So, with that in mind, was it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nick? I wanted to like it much more than I actually did. I'm so sorry. Oh, really? I think it's fascinating. I knew that talking to both of you about it was make me appreciate it even more because I could absolutely see the complexity and the incredible performances and the imagination. And so I'm really pleased you didn't lead with a, did you like it? So I didn't have to be negative. And it's obviously it's subjective, it's film. But it just, the magic was not there for me. Very pleased I've seen it, but it wouldn't be a film I rushed back to. And the crux of it for me was one bit that really really annoyed me and it's kind of a Dunleavy plot thing that I think would usually annoy you and why the fuck does she eat the grape she is told not to eat anything so many times there are like freezes all around the walls of what will happen the fairies are in her face she bats them away twice and she still eats it and it really fucking pissed me off I feel like that's quite a typical fairy tale trope though a character is told not to do something and then they end up doing it. And that's where that whole fable aspect comes from. And also, I would add, she lives in a world where rules are really, really, really restricted. And we want her to kick back against the rules. We want her to. So in many ways, maybe it shows that she's more Mercedes than her mother. I absolutely appreciate that. And like I say, I really wanted to love it more. So I, I feel it's a flaw on my part, not the film's part. Yosra, it's your pick. Right, I've said before recording, I have three films in mind, and I'm going to make, it's really hard for me to choose. I'm going to save Disney for later, and I'm going to go for the divisive Sofia Coppola film, Marie Antoinette, as my next pick. I've never seen it. I'm going to be very interested to see what you think. Standard Issue for All Women.